Oh my goodness, my retail heroine, Jane Shepherdson, CBE, the lady behind the genius of Topshop, the woman who transformed whistles and now leading the way with retail rental with My Wardrobe HQ. Can you imagine how I felt talking to this powerhouse? There she was, raw with her advice, telling me exactly what it feels like when you're in your flow when it comes to retail. Jane believes in the power of emotional commerce, who's very clear that women leading have an enormous gratitude to pay for their gut instinct. I have learned so much from this conversation, but it's also just really made me feel instinctively, I know what I'm doing. And I hope that that's how you feel after this amazing interview. Thank you, Jane. Enjoy, everyone. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. Hi, I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. I founded my first business, Not on the High Street, at 28, with a newborn strapped to my chest. Nearly 20 years on, he's all grown up, and I'm running my second business, Holly & Co. I've learnt so much about taking risks, running a business, and some extraordinary life lessons along the way, and I know others have too. Yet despite the wealth of experience we have between us, lessons like this are often left unheard and it can feel like we're travelling our paths alone. So I've reached out to founders and those who simply inspire me to share their hard-earned wisdom with you. My hope is that collectively, these remarkable realisations will help you on your own journey. I like to think of it as inspiration for life. If you enjoyed this episode, might I ask you to share it with a friend and to like, subscribe and review it so that together we can ignite people's passion across the UK. Now, let's begin this week's Conversation of Inspiration. Jane, welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. It is just an honour to be meeting such an icon of mine. Oh, likewise, likewise. (laughs) Oh my goodness. This is going to be so much fun. Well, you're such a busy woman and you are a fashion guru and your background is the brand director of Topshop and it's Heyday, the CEO of Whistles and now the chair of the industry-leading clothing rental company, My Wardrobe HQ. I cannot wait to get stuck in. What I will say is I remember... We launched Not in the High Street in 2006. And back then, you were one of the very few female CEOs out there and leading women out there. And I just I just want to say thank you for trailblazing. I remember Sophie and I would sit down and there was very few people that you could look at to say someone is being bolshy out there. Someone has got a real personality. Do you, as a woman, do you remember that time? And things have changed, haven't they? You know, we do have, luckily enough, more women that we can look up to. But do you remember that time? It was pretty barren, wasn't it? It was It was a really difficult time. It's funny, actually. I, I, was, I was on a panel the other day talking about... Uh, women on boards. And actually, a headhunter told me just after I left Topshop, which wasn't long after you, after you launched, it was in 2007, I think it was. She said, well, well, Jen, she said, I would, tr- I would get you onto a board, but unfortunately, you're seen as being a very difficult woman. Now, you would never say 
he's seen to be a difficult man, would you? You, you would say he was strong or he was, you know... Yeah. He opinionated. Had, exactly, exactly. I, I mean, I laughed at it at the time. I just thought, oh, who gives a shit, really? Yeah. Um, I don't want to win a board anyway. But I, I think back on it now and think, well, you know, there we go. But but you're right, there were very few women. But also, there were very few, and I, and I don't know whether this is still the case, but there were very few what I saw as creatives leading businesses, people mm. who actually had a vision for what that business would look like, as opposed to somebody who thought, I'm going to make this business as profitable as possible. I think perhaps like, we were very, very naive, or I was very naive, and that I wasn't thinking, I want to make as much money as possible. I was just thinking, I want Topshop to be the most amazing place that I would love, that all of my friends that would love, that every woman would go in there and just think, oh my God, this is fantastic. It's got everything I wanted and more. So I think it's it's perhaps a different way of, of looking at things. And, and maybe that's not possible anymore. Perhaps you're you're leading the charge to, fi- to find the next person who can do that. <laughs> I think that, but the fact that you just said that, I think that's exactly what Sophie and I were pinning ourselves on is the fact that you were a creative visionary leading something. And that's what we needed to see. And being, and we're going to talk more and more because you certainly turned it around, hello, because actually if it was all about about the profits. You did absolutely delivered that. But before we get into that success, let's just start off with your story right at the beginning and going back to Bristol, because you were one of three children and you were from a family of, well, my goodness, such high achievers. Your father was a maths professor and your mother was a biologist. So I'm going to say that you were academic. Is that right? Well, the family was definitely academic, but I sort of rebelled against that, if you like. I just, I thought, well, that's not for me. I I, I think I maybe just have a rebellious nature anyway, but I just didn't want to do what everyone else in the family was doing, if you like. Um, but yeah, it, they were very, it was very academic. Yes. Yeah. Because you were born, uh, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s. I can imagine that if you have the rebellious streak, that was a pretty good time to grow up. It was a fantastic time. And I and I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm extremely privileged. I come from a, a middle class family. You know, we, we never had any, any real issues at all. It was a great time to grow up. You know, I, I was just... I came to London when punk was was just sort of, you know, uh, emerging. Um, it couldn't have been a better time. It was so much fun. You know, it, it, we were all extremely anarchic and, and uh, you know, we, we, we sort of had the, the Thatcher years, so we had something to sort of bite back against. Yeah, it was, it was a good time. It was a very good time. I'm going to assume that the social scene held more appeal than college. Was that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> the Camden Palace used to have a great night on a, on a Tuesday night. And in fact, it was, it was, it was the best night because we, we knew that everyone that had a real job couldn't go on a Tuesday night because they would be totally hungover on Wednesday morning. But we were just students. So we thought, well, what the hell? So yes. What the hell? Exactly. Yeah. We, we, we sort of would buy our outfits at World's End. And and uh, and just sort of dance the night away. And yeah, it was fun. So you came out of this period of your life with qualifications or uh, lacking? Uh, low, quali- low qualifications. Low qualifications. Yeah, so you yeah, entered yeah. the world with low qualifications, but you did enter the world, as most teenagers, with shopping being 
a big part of your life. And I heard Chelsea Girl was a, was that right? Am I right a in Chelsea saying Girl that? Chelsea Girl was, uh, yes. Was a favourite haunt was, of was, yours? Well, all, all of the high street stores at the time. Chelsea Girl um, was, was, was great. I think Miss Selfridge was, was there. Yes, there. yes wasn't it? Was, yes. Was there. Um, I'm trying to remember who else. Bus Stop, I seem to remember. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I loved clothes. I loved the fact that uh, if you, if you put something on, you could, be someone different, if you like. Um, I, I, I think maybe I was quite shy as a child and therefore, um, you know, wearing different clothes said something about me that I didn't have to say, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I loved clothes and, and, uh, and I remember trying to make clothes really badly. Yeah, I was going to ask, were you good at sewing? No, I wasn't at all. I, I, I would love to have been but I really wasn't. I just, I wasn't, I was creative to an extent, but not creative enough to be a designer or, or an artist or anything like that. So, which was very annoying. And actually, I didn't know at the time that, that one could be a buyer, you know, but I, I didn't, those sort of vocational courses didn't really exist in, in, in those days. And probably wasn't coming up in your, um, Careers advice, potentially. Oh, absolutely not. And in fact, the first time I think I heard about it was that one of my mother's chemistry students, um, she came home and she said, oh, you'll never guess what she's done. She ke- she's become a buyer. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, well, somebody designs the clothes and then she makes ranges and 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 puts them together and they sell in the shop. And I thought, oh my God, that sounds perfect. That's exactly what, was, what I could do. What, also, what was your mother, highly academic, with a highly academic student talking about your dream job? No, well, I think this chemistry student had become a buyer. Oh, she ditched the yes, chemistry. she ditched right. the chemistry, obviously. <laughs> yes, yes. So you moved to London to study business at 18. It was the 80s. And I can imagine that was quite a bit of fun, as we said. Tell me about that time in your life and how it led you to getting that first job at Topshop. Because I'm right in saying that you worked your way up, didn't you? I did. I did. A friend of mine got a job um, in Evans, I think it was, which was part of of, of the Burton Group, as it was then. Yes. And and I sort of said to her, what what what, are you, what sort of stuff are you doing? And she told me, and she told me what the buyers were doing and what have you. And I thought, well, well, that sounds great. I'm I need I need to get on, you know, I need to get onto this. And uh, and I and I think a few months later, I spent a bit of time on, on benefits, you know, as most of us did in those days. Um, not not able to find any work, and then I found this job, and it was the very bottom rung in the buying office. It was what was called an allocator, which was where you basically sent the stock out from the warehouse, not not physically, obviously, uh, on a computerized form that went into the computer room because, of course, we didn't have our own computers <laughs> then. And the computer room, the computer room. It, took up it was called a room. The, that's right. It did. It was enormous. It was yes. And I took this job and I remember I was paid four and a half thousand pounds a year and I had a job in a pub in the evening to pay my rent because obviously four and a half thousand pounds a year was not going to pay your rent in London. And it was a really monotonous, boring job. And uh, but I just thought, oh, my God, I'm here. I've arrived. I could, you know, I was on a department. I could see what they were all doing. I could, you know, I could see the ranges. I could see what the designs. It was wonderful. I loved it. And, and you were sort of close and personal for the first time 
in a way with fashion. And is that where it was born? Literally, that bottom run job, that's where it was born. Because what happened then? What were those first? Was that in Topshop? That was in Topshop. Yeah, that yeah. was in Topshop. So what yeah. were those first years like then working? Because obviously you're right at the bottom. How did you start going up that ladder, so to speak? Well, I think, I, I think it, again, as we're so often in life, I was very lucky in that somebody resigned or whatever. So I was only mm-hmm. an allocated for about six months. And in those days, you could sort of go up through, through, the, uh, through the job titles a lot more quickly. Um, I became an assistant buyer after six months, which is unheard of now. Yeah, I was assistant buyer on the lingerie department. Uh, so it was bras and knickers and swimwear. I really didn't, didn't care, actually, which department I was on. You know, I just thought I have to, I just have to get in there. And I just learned. I learned and learned and learned. I had a very strict buyer who I had to basically get everything ready for her. I had to sort of organize all her appointments and make decisions. But she would watch me very closely and she was very strict and very well-groomed. In fact, all the buyers were terribly well-groomed. They were they were quite frightening. <laughs> wow. They really were. And, and I felt like a sort of scruffy student. <laughs> I think I, I remember I used to wear, I used to wear my favourite outfit at the time was a pair of black DMs, black tights, brown velvet jigsaw hot pants mm. and a uh, black turtleneck top. And I just thought, I have arrived. You know, I'm here. <laughs> it's not sounding bad. It's just flashed myself back to the fact I think I owned a pair of velvet shorts. Oh, I God. Mean, I mean, God, gosh. Yeah, yeah. They were, they were the bee's knees, weren't they? Those they velvet were. shorts. And you went from the assistant underwear buyer, then you became a jersey buyer. I did. I did. And jersey was, that was the pinnacle, I have to say, because jersey was the biggest department. Um, right. And I did not know that. Yes, yes. Because, you know, that's kind of, I guess, whatever what most people bought in those days. And and when I joined Topshop, I must say, I was quite sniffy about it. I joined it because it was, was young fashion, but it wasn't something that one aspired to. And I was slightly embarrassed to tell my friends that I worked for Topshop because in those days it was pastel stripy t-shirts with body talk written on them. I mean, oh, really? I don't know, yeah. probably nowadays that's, uh, you know, it, it's it's probably come round again and it's highly fashionable, I don't know. But uh, but at the time, yes, yeah, so Topshop was, was sort of cheap and cheerful. It was very teenage. It didn't go much older than that. It was fine, but it wasn't as good as it should have been. Mm. And I kind of realised that quite early on. I just thought... And what what really got me, actually, was that the buyers would all shop in Harvey Nichols. Oh, right. Because we had discount in Harvey Nichols because it was owned by the Burton Group. Yes. And um, so they would all buy in Harvey Nichols. And, you know, as obviously I was only on by that time £10,000 a year or something. But you were buying in Harvey Nichols. I wasn't buying in Harvey (laughs) Nichols, no. But I also thought, but Topshop should be for for me. It should be for us. Yes. It was almost as if a new generation needed to come through Mm. and, and turn this brand into something that that we wanted it to be. Um, and I suppose, you know, I got hold of the biggest department and I, and I started there. You know, I thought, right, I'm going to, let's make some changes here. So you're still the assistant though, aren't you? It, when you were in the Jersey part? Uh, no, by that, when I was, no, when I was in Jersey, I'd been promoted to buy it. Again, it was, I was okay. lucky, someone someone left, you know, I was, I was moved over. But this was your moment because you ordered this tank top that went on to sell half a million. Um, and this was... This was the, was the, was that piece of clothing the moment where it started shifting for you? 
I, I guess it was around that time. You're talking about the, what we used to call the Kate Moss vest because it was, uh, yeah, because she saw yes. it. Because she, she wore them, I guess. Yeah, so I suppose it was, it was, I was successful. The department was doing very well. We had moved in a different direction. It was working very well. So, so people who in the past would have perhaps scared me a little bit, now I kind of thought, well, you know, this is this is where we're going, you know. This is working, and I have the success to prove it, you know. Yeah. And I think that's really important to say, you know. You it, one doesn't just acquire confidence from nowhere. Well, I certainly I, I acquired it because I had been successful and I was successful, and I knew that. And I thought, right, okay, I've got I've got something here. And probably they were starting to get jittery about you. You know, that, that's probably what was actually happening. I love hearing about these early days. And it's when you meet founders who really start with the marigolds on, who yes. are, you know, start right at the bottom, you know, editors who started in classified and actually know the nitty gritty exactly. parts behind every single job that they then proceed to do over the next few uh, years. Over those next years, as a buyer, you basically started transforming the brand. And one of the things that I love to speak about is the stance that you took on only selling clothing that you were absolutely proud of. Because in all business, there's this pressure mm. to stock what sells, whether you feel it fits the brand ethos really or not. You can sort of manipulate your mind to go to excuse it because it's it's a great seller. But you implemented this very brave new policy on only selling clothes that you could fully stand behind. It must have been quite scary initially, but you had this vision. And when I watched the trouble at Topshop and things like that, it's amazing that you stood by that vision because that is what transformed it. Tell us about that bravery or did you think it was brave at the time? <sighs> It's really hard to say. I, I don't think I thought it was brave. I thought that I had evidence to show that it worked. That's your parents coming in, isn't it? Science, uh... <laughs> <laughs> See, it was there. The DNA was right there. It was there. It was there all the time. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted No, no, you. no, but you're, but you're absolutely right. So I, so I kind of felt that Yes, it wasn't brave, but it seemed to me to be completely obvious. Mm. So, uh, and I also remember uh, at the time I had buying, a male buying director, you know, who was saying, well, Jane, we're going to do some market research and we're going to find out what women like to put in their bag or whatever when they, when they leave the shop. And I just said, why on earth are we spending money on this? I'll tell you exactly what they want. I am a woman. We're all women. And, and the whole buying office was women. You know, it was 80% women, probably 85% women. Yeah. And, and, you know, and yet we had to go off and do some market research and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of data. That's a terrible thing to say nowadays. But, you know, data's in the past. Mm. It's what's happened. I mm. wanted to change things. I wanted to bring in something that was new, something that was forward thinking, something that... So I wasn't actually interested that we'd sold 10,000 black formal trousers. I was more interested in what we were going to sell next year. Yeah. Because if we sold the same ones next year, then we'd be the same as everyone else. My merchandiser at the time would look at me and would say, yeah, but, but look, Jane, but look at the history. Look at the history. Look, we've sold with this. We've sold that. We've sold the other. We need to keep, we need to keep selling these. And I kept saying, well, we don't because I don't want that anymore. Mm. And so therefore my customers aren't going to want that anymore. They will want something that is appropriate for, for next year. And that's what we have to find out. That's why we have to sort of look at the very edges of, of fashion and the edges of sort of what those people who are wearing kind of ugly things almost at the moment, what they're wearing 
going so that we can see what, what's going to happen for next year. You know, it has to be something that's evolving. It's a creative process. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it didn't feel brave. It just felt like it was the right thing to do. Well, like potentially you're banging heads together more that actually the way you're looking at things is incorrect. And actually, you need to listen and have trust in, as you said, 85% of the buyers were women. We don't need to do the research to work out what we've got in our, our bags. So the black trousers, let's say we're all selling, but that would have been stored in your mind. Okay, so she's got the black trousers. She's liking that. She's liking that look, et cetera, et cetera. I'll, I'll use that as a data point in my mind, but that won't be prescriptive to me. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because you're thinking, okay, this is a, it's a slim black trouser, for example. However, the silhouette is changing slightly. It has been changing over the last couple of years. It's been getting slightly wider or it's been moving towards cargo or it's been moving in this whatever direction. So therefore, that black trouser of next year has to reflect the macro trend that's happening all around us. So, 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 so it's that sort of... It's very instinctive, I think. Mm. I had by this time a team of extremely talented designers, forecasters, buyers, who were all sort of out there, who were seeing what was happening and were going, you know what, this is, this is happening here, this is happening. So, so we would just move almost organically in, in, in that direction with them. And fortunately, we, you know, we, we, we were right. I think it's very much being in the right place at the right time, though, I have to say. Some of you might know that Holly & Co is a B Corp, but did you know that we've just launched a UK first? We've just opened the doors to our purpose-led marketplace of creative small businesses built by women and supporting predominantly female founders, or as we call them, our co's, of which 90% are women. It's a home of small businesses that celebrates colour, creativity and craftsmanship. A place where you can mark milestones, show your love in life's darkest moments and shop with purpose to vote with your money for the kind of world we all want to live in. In another Retail First, you can also shop according to your values by following the badges on each Co's page. So you can actively choose to support neurodivergent founders, founders over 60, black-owned businesses or kidpreneurs, just to name a few. Perhaps you'd like to choose UK-made or sustainable products. However you want to shop, each time you do so with us, you know you're supporting a founder with hopes and dreams and an extraordinary imagination. So join us and join the retail revolution at holly.co, the home of small business. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. Do you think that having an emotional connection with what you sell is sort of the secret to the success? You know, if you think about men leading high streets, grey hair suits versus understanding customer emotion, how she's feeling in those trousers, slim to cargo pants. Do you see what I mean? Uh, no question. Absolutely no question. I think I think you have to have that emotional connection because, because that's how... That's how women buy clothes, you know. Clo clothes are an extremely emotional decision. You know, the clothes that, that women, you know, we, we buy far too many clothes. We, we, you know, we, we know that, 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 and that's another conversation. But Yes, but, I'm going to get to that. Yeah, yeah. But we buy them because they 
because they lift our self-esteem, because they make us feel better, because they make us feel like a different person. Mm-hmm. I, I work with with the with SmartWorks, a volunteer dressing women. Love that charity. And, you know, a woman can put a different outfit on and quite literally see herself as a different person. It's a very, very emotional thing. And I think everybody in Topshop at that time was very passionate, was very emotionally attached to the brand, to what they were doing. And we were we were all very proud, mm. you know. We 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 all felt that you know this, we'd achieved something. Is it? It's amazing if you think about, and you obviously have, you know, the power of that collective of women, emotionally connected to the customer, emotionally connected to maybe each other, wanting to having yourself as a leader with a vision, having the ability to drive that change. What a force! I mean. I often wonder why aren't most retailers like that? <laughs> because if your customer is 99% female, why isn't that the formula? Because I read something that you said everything was based on retail formulas. You know, all the crap talked by men in retail, formulas and percentages. To me, that's utter nonsense. That's not how women shop. You don't say, oh, a percentage of my wardrobe will be this <laughs> and a percentage that. Generally, men are more competitive. They want Want to get to the top more than women do, not more than I do, but more than most women do. Their style tends to be a bit more aggressive, and a lot of women don't necessarily want to fight to the top. Now, that's combining a couple of points, mm, mm. formulas and percentages. And in a way, I think, what's your viewpoint on when we just talk broadly about women in business? And what you and I have just spoken about, and I'm I'm talking to you from the home Mm. of small business, and I'm doing something very, very different. That was all run off instinct, what I believe is a vision and the future. Do you think that that's a very difficult stance to have when you're surrounded by the men in suits? I think it is. And I also think it's more difficult to do it now. I think because, uh, particularly because of the move towards e-commerce and I and, and here I really take yeah. take my hat off to you because you know if, if you have a, a retail presence of actual shops that you can go into you know I spent an awful lot of time going into shops talking to customers seeing what they were doing seeing what they were buying acting as if I was a customer which I was I think that's then a lot easier to be more instinctive to sort of follow your gut etc I think you can't actually even see it. I think it becomes much more difficult. And I think since the pandemic as well, I do think that a lot of businesses seem to have decided that they wanted the business to be in the safe hands of a man. You know, I I, I keep hearing this from, from people. And, and it's so like, do I. you know, it's like, well, why are a man's hands more safe than a woman's hands? Surely it should be the opposite if a woman, if it's a, a female customer base. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So it's very, it's difficult. I think it's very difficult. I mean, the proof right at the start of this interview, you were talking about, you know, it was about this more than profits and it was about the vision more than profits. Well, then, you know, my point was Topshop became a retail sensation. Profits rose from 9 million to 110 million. And you became known as one of the most influential people in British fashion. The Oxford Circus Store, oh my God, I love that place. I love that place, became a fashion destination for A-list celebrities, stylists, models, all shopping there. When you walked into that Oxford Circus store, what did you feel? Because 
it really was. Everyone listening here are not, we're all nodding. That was just the place. You would never say I don't shop at Topshop. I do, I do now. But in the past, even as I became older, I never would say it because I would go into that store and there would be something. Oh, and I, well, I was in there, you know, sort of three or four, five times a week. I loved it. It, it was, it was our, it was our world. It always could be better, mm. you know. Every time I was in there, I would, I would think of something. I would think, right, okay, you know what? This is okay, but it should be better. I also desperately wanted for people who couldn't afford to buy designer clothes i wanted them to be able to have the thrill of wearing something that was designed by someone amazing you know i didn't yes. you know I, I i thought that sort of having to walk down bond street or, or whatever and go into these very snooty designer stores i just thought well our customers not not only do they not want that but also they can't afford that and anyway uh, who cares? Let's do something that's as mm. good or better. Mm. Let's have specific style advisors so that they can, you know, have, be treated like a VIP if that's what they want. Or let's have a boutique range. Or let's have a let's have. You know, we're not always copying the catwalk, so let's have our own unique range, which is mm-hmm. which is going to go on on the catwalk in London. Because why shouldn't it? Why, who says it has to only be? expensive designer clothes you know it doesn't have to be uh we can all benefit from great design and 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 creativity and and that's the way it should be total visionary total visionary tell me about the time of change the new pastures new yeah can you talk to me about why you decided to leave sure of course uh i mean i i philip had bought arcadia i think about oh i can't remember actually it must have been in the end of uh or the very beginning of Maybe it was 2001, too. Um, you probably know better than I do because your research is obviously very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you left Topshop in 2006. I left it at the, actually the very beginning of 2007. But yes, it was. A, yes. yes, that's right. Yes. So Philip had bought Topshop and we were very upset when he bought Arcadia. We just thought, oh, for Christ's sake, you know, this is just awful. What does this guy know about fashion? So we then spent the next, I guess it was five or six years, just trying almost to create a dome around my team. A force field. Exactly. So that he couldn't enter it and couldn't sort of get involved with Topshop in any way because it was successful. So I had that that power, if you like. Um, And I just felt, you know, he's just wrong. We're talking about democratising fashion. He's a billionaire. You know, the two just do not sit side by side in any way at all. And we managed to do that very successfully for about sort of four or five years. The other brands in Arcadia were not doing so well Mm -hmm. and they were not very sexy and he didn't really want to be particularly involved with them. And he more and more wanted to be involved with Topshop. And uh, it got to a point where, I mean, every day I used to have to work myself up into a fury just so that I could sort of beat him back down again, you know, because I knew very well that if someone tries to bully you, then you just shout louder than they do and slam your fist on the table and and they back down. So, I mean, all that's fine, but it's actually quite emotionally draining. So I was doing that all the time. And I got to the stage where I just thought, I'm fighting a losing battle here. He's going to take over. There's no question. He can have it. That's it. That's it. I'm I'm not going to work with him. I can't. It's just not what I do. And so I just thought I've got to go. So, yeah, so I left. Gosh, that moment that you decided, so you fought for years. Yes. So this isn't like overnight. This is no, like, no, no. Right, can't wait. So you fought for years. 
that moment where we as maybe women are fighting up against something that we just cannot, we're not going to win it. Yes. We're not going to win it. As much as we should, we should win it. We're not going to win it. Do you think that that's where we can look at it as not, I, I wouldn't say failing, obviously terrible mm. word, F word, all that sort of thing. How did you navigate your emotions at that point in time? Did you feel like you were abandoning something or did you feel those emotions that you were failing, that you could have done something better? That moment that you said, that's it, that is it. Well, I, I don't know whether it's self-preservation, but, yeah. but I almost convinced myself as, as well that, you know, I was in my for, like my 40s then. Was I in my 40s? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and, and I also thought, you know what? I'm, I'm getting to the stage where I'm actually not a Topshop customer anymore. And perhaps mm -hmm. it's time for somebody else to step mm -hmm. in. It was very upset. I was incredibly emotional. I was, you know, burst into tears, not in front of Philip, obviously, burst into tears, you know, because I was like leaving a family. You know, these are people that I was so close to. Of course. And I was defined by it. Mm -hmm. I was then very lucky in that I think nearly all of the press took my side and mm -hmm. were extremely positive, were very supportive, were wonderful. And so I kind of thought, well, you know, maybe you know, this is this is obviously is the right thing to do. And also I thought, yeah, I had been there for 20 years by that time. Yes. You know, you can't stay in the same place forever. And I was quite excited about the idea of taking on a new challenge or something that was, you know, completely different. And that's what you did. You joined Whistles yes. as CEO yes. um, to reposition the brand on the high street. You must have felt quite a pressure. I mean, a pressure and excitement at exactly the same time. You know, there you were taking taking on the older customer, and I'd love you to tell me about that, but also that you have now come with a reputation. Have you ever felt imposter syndrome? You know, can I do this again? You must feel exactly the same way. I do. <laughs> I need you to tell me how you are feeling because right now I'm like, do you know what I mean? Like, heaven forbid why I thought a second marketplace was a good idea, but, you know, there yes, we are. Yes, um, It was a uh, huge pressure, not helped by the fact that it was 2008, global financial crisis hit in that autumn. We were backed by Icelandic banks who all went under virtually immediately. And so we had to refinance at the same time as as people, you know, we took over in January. People, our first collection really was, was that autumn, which was at the same time as the financial crisis. People expected it to be perfect. Mm. Of course it wasn't perfect. The older Whistles customer had got very, very used to how can I describe it? A sort of slightly frilly, you know, uh, ribbony, sort mm -hmm. of pretty, pretty mm -hmm. kind of look, which is not mm -mm. my look at all. Not that this is about what I think, but but it has to be. I think, you know, you, ha you have to sort of yes, engage I mean, completely. Exactly. Of course you do. This needed to become your vision. Yeah. So some of the press was sort of going, oh, it's not quite, you know, it's not quite changed enough for us. And, and uh, the existing customers were obviously going, oh, my God, what is this? Who's this woman from? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What is she doing? she doing? Where have the ribbons gone? <laughs> yeah. Where's my velvet trim? I loved it. So it, it took a while, and there was a there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of pressure. Uh, so it was it was a tough couple of years, I think, and until we kind of got into our stride and realised that you know effortless style was what was was all about. And was it lovely? Because I think about I mentioned launching obviously the second marketplace, and what's amazing is that when I think back to not on the high street, you know, Sophie and I had young children. You know, I had a three month 
old when I started Not in the High Street and Sophie's children were slightly older. I think about then the customer and I also think about um, what we were selling. We brought personalization out of snappy snaps onto things. We were revolutionizing things, but it was a customer maybe with younger children and partners was what we called them at Not in the High Street. Now at Holly & Co, we have 500 small businesses, our co's. 90% of them are female. 75% of them are between the ages of 40 and 65. Really? I'm 46. And so actually, did you feel, I'm finding it so interesting that the type of customer that we're getting in, the co's that we have on board, are very much in my stage And actually, is that amazing how maybe at your age you were going to Whistles, you were moving on from Topshop, how these things, we develop brands that basically can answer for the needs of maybe people like ourselves. I think that's what you and I do. I think it's really important because I think it's very hard to do something that is completely different to what you instinctively know. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, people can do it. Obviously, they can do it. Men design, women design menswear, when men design women's wear, and, and that sort of thing. But I think we have a huge advantage. Uh, and I think if you're interested in people like yourself and your customer, then I think you've got a huge advantage from day one. And also, if we actually look at the age that we're talking about, the over 40s, let's just say, yeah. is actually it's so underrepresented. I mean, it's better nowadays, but the actual thought of, you know, women over 40, women over 50, how are they marketed to? Are they even marketed to? Yes. Are they regarded as the CEOs of the household? Absolutely not. I mean, it's it's incredible. Now, there you were working in fashion. I'm working within sort of, you know, the department store side of things. Do you think that that has changed, that women are getting seen more or do you think we've got a long way to go? I, it's. I, I would love to think that it's it, that it's getting a lot better, but I, it almost feels like it's one step forward and then and then two steps back. What makes you think that? Well, I think, uh, and the fact I was I was listening to something the other day, just the fact that um, everything is so visual now. Mm. You know, we are well, like, like look at us. We're looking at, at, at images of ourselves and each other. Your people take selfies all the time. If you look back to, to when I was when I was younger, we had mirrors and we had cameras, and those cameras we took photographs that would go into albums that you know yeah. your friends and family saw, but nobody else did. Nowadays, you're bombarded with people's faces uh, all across social media, and so therefore, it's more important what a woman looks like yes. than it was actually 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and you can make careers on social media, but the people that do, that do well on social media look, are the ones that look great. So, so you know, um, I don't know is the answer. I really mm. don't know. I, I think in some ways we're making gains in, within e-commerce. Certainly, I know an awful lot of women who have made, like yourself, who, who have made, mm. created fantastic businesses because they were able to sort of do that with, with sort of, you know, bringing up children and lo- looking after the family or whatever. So, so in that sense, it's given them much more freedom to, to be able to sort of stretch their, their wings a little bit more. But um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not convinced. We're not there yet. Every week, I hand this part of the podcast over to our brilliant partners at Dell Technologies. 
Dell are there to support you at every stage of your small business journey. And if you're looking for support on scaling up, then this is the ad break for you. Dell for Startups is a free service that provides startup expertise from dedicated technology advisors and scalable solutions to ensure your business is always ready to grow. So whether you need guidance on the right Dell tech for your business, an introduction to server solutions or financing options to scale your hardware, then head to dell.com forward slash UK startups. There's no catch. It's totally free and designed with you in mind. So what are you waiting for? Now back to our conversation of inspiration. One of the things when we worked, you know, obviously we're bringing on all of our small businesses. And when I saw that that was the majority, 40 to 65, I thought, okay, okay, here we go. We're on to something. You know, this is the change that we have got to see that. And I and I think we can absolutely do something about that. I'm going to come back to you, though, because yeah. another area you've pioneered, and we're going to talk about your recent business in a moment, is the ethical fashion. Now, we're familiar with these terms now, but fast fashion back then, so 2008, it wasn't something being spoken about. And you started to make these moves when you were at Whistles, which is so revolutionary, you know, thinking about understanding the supply chain, which is notoriously difficult. We now know, we're educated to know then. But in 2008, people weren't talking about this. Why did you look at that then? Well, I mean, to, to be honest with you, in, in 2008 and before, people were were very interested or people were beginning to become very interested in the social injustice of the fashion industry. And we knew about that and we and we also felt that as part of our ethos that we were there to sort of democratize we were there for women most of our makers manufacturers were women that we had to do everything we possibly could to make sure that we weren't doing the wrong thing now we still did the wrong thing i mean you know it, it was it's incredibly difficult not to we tried very very hard we made mistakes but we tried very very hard and we continued to do that at Whistles, where it was easier because it was a much, much smaller supply chain. And, and, and Topshop would have had thousands of factories, whereas uh, Whistles, you know, we're, we're talking about a couple of hundred at the, at the most. So that was, that was important. It was when I was at Whistles that everybody began to realise the damage environmentally mm. that, that fashion had, had actually done, which wasn't even talked about when I was in Topshop. You know, it, it really wasn't. It was, you know, the democratisation of fashion, whatever it was, was seen as a good thing. Uh, now we look at it and, and people accuse me. People say, oh, well, you started fast fashion, so it's all your fault. You know, and I know I have a lot to make amends for. I really do. But I didn't, you know, we, we didn't start out to make people buy loads of shit. Mm, we, yeah. start, we tried to make clothes more compelling. Anyway, I mean, I know I, I'm, I'm, you know, hands up, I'm guilty. I, I know that. Um, but it was when I was at Whistles that, that I really began to realise that actually I couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. I just could not, I, you know, it was, it was just the wrong thing to do. The climate crisis had become, it become so obvious that being in fashion uh, was just the wrong thing to do. And, it, and, and so in 2016, I left and I took a year out, you know, did, um, went around America on a... Did a gap year. On, exactly that, yeah. Yeah, with the dog. Um, and spent a year thinking about what I could 
do, what I could do with the years of experience that I had that surely was not useless Yes. in order to try to ch- either change behavior or to support other, other businesses. So it kind of led me to, we, you know, we'd spent a year doing uh, Airbnb and I thought, well, if you're going to share someone's bed, then surely you'll share someone's clothes. And so that, so, so rental was definitely something that I was, I was interested in, not as the answer, but as a plank in the bridge towards making the industry more sustainable, if you like. Mm. So, and that's what, and I tried to, and I actually started off uh, trying to set up a rental platform myself. And I'm not you, clearly, because I failed dismally. <laughs> Dismally. Oh my God. I don't know what I thought I was, do- what I was doing, but anyway, it was hopeless. So, uh, but, it, but in that time, um, my wardrobe HQ contacted me and said, let's, you know, let's work together and let's try and raise awareness, get this thing off the ground and, and sort of, you know, try to, which is actually what I do. I, I'm not involved in the day to day. I, I kind of use it, um, I'm, I'm trying desperately to raise awareness for, for rental because I do think it's a it's a great thing to do. And I think some mm. form of rental or swapping or whatever has to be uh, has to be more front of mind when we consider, you know, what we're going to wear or, or whatever. There's no question. It's got to be a part of it. So tell me what that is then. So my wardrobe HQ. Yes. So I can literally, and I'm sure lots of people have started renting that are listening. I have yet to do it. Okay. I feel like I don't have enough time. I haven't had enough time yes, just recently. Yes. Just recently, it's just been a tad, <laughs> tad busy. But I want to do this. I want to do this. So what's the mindset? And tell me about it. Well, it's it's the most wonderful experience you could have. It really, can't wait. It really is. It really is. Especially for someone like you who likes to express themselves. Yes. Which is which is wonderful. So I when I first I first got to know rental, I, I used to buy for myself. I, I had a lot of events to go to and I used to always buy navy or black and something discreet that I could wear time and time again. And I wouldn't really be noticed, but they'd go, oh, she's wearing that. That looks, you know, she's got it. If you know, you know. Yeah. So I've got a wardrobe full of really boring clothes. Anyway, I first time I rented, I uh, I rented a lilac feathered Sharon Wouchop gown. Wow. I mean, it's not a gown. It's a dress. It's a dress. It's it's like dusty lilac feathers all over and a matching tailored coat. And I just thought, oh my god, this is me. No, no, no. This is me. You know, my style. This is my style. You know. <laughs> It's not the navy or the black. This is it. This is it. It's fabulous. I spent the whole night feeling like the most wonderful. The next morning, there was a photograph of me in the Times saying, "Best," at least by Lisa Armstrong, saying, best dressed woman or whatever. I was in the list. I'd never been in the list before. <laughs> so by renting this dress, all of a sudden, you know, I had just been transformed from an ugly duckling into a swan. Um so, so basically, yes, you decide on uh, an event you want to go to, you put the dates in, uh, you, you then browse the site in the same way you would browse uh, any kind of, you know, clothing site. And you find something, uh, some, some other things that, so we get stock from both brands and from individuals. So we try to cover as many sizes as possible. But that's interesting because it's also brands that you wouldn't necessarily think would rent, correct? Yes. So yes. Jenny Packham, Vivian Westwood. Absolutely. This is, you know, and this is unattainable for the majority. Yes. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I, my, one of my favorite pieces is uh, an embroidered Gucci trouser suit. Ooh. I wouldn't pay that. I mean, I don't know. How much does that cost? Three grand? Four grand? Yeah, yeah. a bit more than that. Well, exactly. Say. Embroidered. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I wore it. The next day it went on to Trini and she wore it. 
Uh, the next day, it went on to my friend who is the marketing director at Soho House, and she wore it. And all I had to do was I had to turn the trousers up. Okay, the day before Arizona Muse had worn it, I had to turn the trousers up, and kid you not, seven inches. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have her legs. And when you turn them up, what do you do? Do you just put little pins in them? I just tacked it, you know. I tacked just, it, just yeah. got a ne- yeah. needle and thread and just tacked it. And I and yeah. I left it in for the next person because I thought, well, most people don't have the legs of Arizona Mute. So, you know, but it's fine. I've, I have had, I've rented things where I've had to like maybe put a bulldog clip in the back of the trousers and put the jacket on. Mm-hmm. Not everything's going to fit perfectly. I wore a vampire's wife dress at a wedding Ooh, that was, it was gorgeous. I so want to wear one it was of those. so gorgeous. It was a little bit small. So I wore it for the main part of the wedding and then I changed into something else. You know, so it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you have to be a little bit flexible. How amazing. You do have to be a little bit flexible. How amazing. And moving this style in fashion, so obviously after COVID and lockdowns and weddings were happening again, and I think there was a pop-up at Harrods and all of these sorts of things. Yeah. What you've just said to me, and I'm sure a lot of people who might not have tried rental, I'm 100% going to go and try this out because it just needs that litmus paper, doesn't it? It, does. it just needs to just go. A bit like Airbnb. Absolutely. How would we ever think of sleeping in someone else's bed? Yuck. <laughs> but actually, if it's, you know, we love in it. Barcelona and you can have a beautiful view, which you can't afford the hotel room for, absolutely. Yes. It's a, an amazing thing. Have you seen that change in your own friends and the customers and what you're seeing changing? It's slow. It's slow, but it's starting. Yeah. It's starting. And, and, and it's also up to us. As a, as a rental platform to remove as many barriers as possible. So yes, we do have a store in Harrods. That's only one. So if you're outside of London, it's more difficult. But we're desperately trying to remove barriers, make things easier, make things more obvious. Um, it's We're getting there. We're getting there. I mean, as with everything else, it takes time. And the community aspect I heard you like as well, that the from the, you know, you can start your own business actually from buying a phenomenal dress, let's say. Oh, totally, totally. In fact, friends of mine who have got, I've got a friend of mine who has a wardrobe full of Rixo dresses. Now, Rixo dresses rent particularly well. Right. Um, and, and she basically has has them up, all of them up on the platform. And she, you know, she gets a, a, a few hundred pounds each month just from renting mm. out her dresses that, mm. in fact, she, she's not wearing it anymore or she's not wearing at the moment. So, yes, absolutely, you can do that. And it's it's just, it's a nice way of, it's nice to share as well. It's also quite nice to see how someone else looks in the thing that you've yes. just worn. You know, it's, yes. it's fun. Well, how amazing. Yeah. The fact that you had all those people wearing that Gucci. I know. <laughs> um, I mean, gosh, no pressure. Who looks best? You literally can just look and I know, see. I know, I know. Um, you, are you, in terms of just fashion, let's just stand on the balcony. Yes. I know you're a director of the London Fashion Fund, which is looking at finding businesses that are both environmentally and socially responsible. Yes. And I loved seeing that you were currently looking at a business that's growing cotton hydroponically. Am I saying that correctly? You are saying it correctly, yes. Which uses 90% less water. Yeah. I mean, is your mind being blown when you see these things? Oh, completely, completely. In fact, they have moved moved on to sort of... um, what do they call it? Bio, bio-organic, I think, as, as well. But, but, but they're still doing the same thing. And in fact, they've now got funding, I think, from H&M. Um, 
the whole material science side of things. And it's interesting that you mentioned earlier, you said, oh, look, you're the scientist. Here we go. I do find fascinating. And there is so much happening in terms of of, of people finding substitutes for, for leather, for, for plastics, for, um, you know, pe- people who are making... Um, fabrics that are woven by, by microbes, you know, as a sort of leather substitute. But but also, I mean, I, I saw this incredible uh, company called, uh, I think it was Decarbon X or something, whereby they had living microbes within the fabric, that which had brought the colour to the fabric. And therefore, if you wore the, the jacket, you didn't put it in your wardrobe, which was dark. You put it on the back of a chair so that photosynthesis could occur <gasps> and keep these microbes living and, and changing goodness. color. So, so there's so much happening, you know, uh, yeah. which is fascinating and which I hope will one day start to sort of change in a big way the, the damage that we've already done. How fascinating. It must feel like you're pioneering again in a way. You're, you're, you're round companies that are literally dictating the future of fashion. It, really, it does feel like that. It does feel like that. I mean, the, the, there's no scale in any of these uh, yet, but, you know, but, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Tell me, but before we go and, and get on to my questions that I ask at the end of the podcast, one of my passions, as much as I've launched a marketplace, um, had a business called Not on the High Street, is actually the independent high street, is actually the high street. I feel that we, as we just said, everything is so visual. Everything is 2D. Everything is on our phones. If I look at my phone and how many hours I spend on that screen, it's actually insanity. I think my son at university spends less time on his phone than I I do. So, you know, our, our high streets are the community soul. You know, the, this is why we live somewhere. We want to go places. We want to do things. I want to walk with my mum and go shopping and I want to have those experiences. What do you feel about the future of the physical high street? Do you think we're transforming it? Have we got there? Is there a, lo- a long way to go? Is it going to exist in the future? I think there's a, a very, very long way to go. And the saddest thing is to uh, go to a small market town in, a, in England and really just see the high street absolutely decimated. You know, that if there was a Debenhams there, then the Debenhams is gone. Mm-hmm. So many of the, of the fashion chains, you know, all of the Arcadia brands, the Topshop, Dorothy Perkins, all of those brands, Miss Selfridge are all gone. Most of them haven't actually been replaced. No, I know. And we're talking a, a good few years now. Most of them are, are still empty. Mm. Um, I, I think there are certain things happening. I also think what I what I really was excited was was the sort of mix of the digital and the physical. I think they call it the digital, don't they? But which mm. is a horrible word. What but a terrible name. It's a terrible yeah. name. Yeah. Oh my but, god. But, but who created that? Who, hey, who guess. did it? Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, but but I think and I saw uh, the last time I was in New York, I saw um, even brands like yours, which is why I asked you actually if your home with all its wonderful things in it, was going to be open to the public. Because what I think is so incredibly exciting is these sort of concept stores where there's something that you can still see. There's an experience you can have, maybe even a workshop or, or you can you can interact with it. But also then you can go home and you can see the full range and you can, and yes. you can buy from it. And I love that sort of combination. I think 
without some sort of experiences and, and, and some sort of conceptual retail, then that the high streets are going to die, uh, which I think is a real shame. And I don't think the answer is an Amazon fresh or whatever they call it, because no. they drive me up the bloody wall. No. Um, you know, it, it's got to be something that, that's much more personal, individual, and people are starting to do it, but it, it's going to take a long time, I think. And the actual concept of, you know, just recently I've been talking to, you know, we have on at Holly & Co for the last eight years, campaigned every year, campaign shop independent. We do the summer, which is basically flying the flag for small businesses. And in the winter, three years ago, we've come up with uh, Colour Friday. It's on the same day as Black Friday. Uh-huh. And this is where small businesses protest and we represent ourselves. Please, consumers, vote with your money. Please be conscious consumers. Vote for the founder, the woman who's making a business, feeding her children, you know, all these sorts of things. The idea of the high street, though, the actual little idea when you say a market town with those small individual shops, you do wonder how when the government's not supporting it, when the business rates are still rocket high, when you have the consumers who do have in their mind in 24 hours, I can get this off Amazon or they they don't even think to walk in the high street because now they slightly don't need to, you know. We'll all pay the price, won't we, as a society, if we don't get out of our phones? Totally. But but what really annoys me is that so many people say say, "Oh yes, I really do support independent traders." Yes. Uh, and then they do go you? and then they go and buy online from Amazon. How guilty are we all, though, at doing that? You know, I can say, you know, the pledge is to actually turn that app off your phone, isn't it? Yes. The pledge is to say, I will go to the local supermarket. I will go to the local greengrocers, the butcher, the baker, the gift shop, you know, all of those sorts of things. I know. Well, I'm terribly old-fashioned. I I don't use any of those food delivery apps or anything like that. I just walk over to Waitrose. I don't ever use Amazon. Because uh, I just think it's disgusting that they don't pay tax in this country. So you know, what, look at the infrastructure of this, this country. How dare they take all that money and not give anything back? It's just wrong. Couldn't agree more. And so, do you think, in terms of when you look at the independent high street, actually for all businesses listening, small businesses, yes, what do we need to do to keep beating that drum? You know, so from the independent stores on the high street, would you say you, you're going to have to morph and change potentially to get that customer to come into your small independent shop? I think it's really difficult because I also think that it's really important that the standard is high enough. Mm-hmm. I have seen a lot of small businesses that claim to be sustainable businesses. And I looked at them and I thought, well, Actually, what would be more sustainable is if you just stop making anything because the standard is not good enough. The design mm-hmm. isn't there. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not beautiful. So, so we have a responsibility to make sure that everything that we are producing uh, has value and is beautiful and is well-designed. I think the business rates thing is a real problem. I do, you know, business rates at the moment are almost 50% of the rent. I mean, mm. it, which, which, which will cripple any small business mm-hmm. trying to, 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 to get out there and, and make a difference. Um, I think we need to campaign for that to come down. And I don't think our high streets are going to until we do. It's an, it's an uphill struggle, but I, I think some people are achieving it. Some people are achieving it. You know, I go, I, I do very often go out and sort of wander up and down my local high street. And there are, some that succeed and some that fail. And, and you look at the ones that succeed and, and you sort of think, okay, right, that one worked because the standard was mm-hmm. high. They know their customer, they, the offer is right. 
It's hard work. It always is. And and running your own business, I always, and yourself, you know, you're practically the founder of these companies with your vision is that, you know, our standards are higher than anyone else. Like when you said you walked around Topshop, it's always, you know, it's the founder titus, I call it. You're never happy. You shouldn't <laughs> ever be happy, right? No. You're the person coming in. Oh, look at this, Jane. Have we done this? Yeah, this is lovely. But guess what? That needed to be better. We could do this. You know, it's notoriously difficult to work for one. I'm coming to the end of this interview and you're going to read a letter to your younger self. And I'm so excited about this. But before we do, I have two questions for you. I use the analogy of a roller coaster. Yes. That this entire, our careers, or if you founded a business, that it is one heck of a ride. And that's all we can say. Can you share with us what you would say was one of your lowest moments on that roller coaster? Um, I think probably when uh, when Philip bought Arcadia was, was yeah, that was a, that was a pretty, pretty low moment. Did you know instantly what was going to happen? I know I had a pretty good idea. I had a pretty good idea. Yeah. Yeah. We all, we all did. Do you stay in contact with that family you built? Oh, yes. Yes. How amazing is that? <laughs> How fantastic. And tell me, when the wind's in your hair and you're wearing something pretty, uh, your Gucci embroidered uh, suit, tell me, in <laughs> probably not the best thing to wear on a roller coaster, but what would you say has been that moment, that greatest high for yourself? Well, it's probably, sadly, it's probably another Topshop moment, which was when we first got on to the, to the schedule of London Fashion Week. Yes. Uh, because they'd always said, you know, it's not about high street brands, it's about designers and you'll, you'll never get there. And then we did. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a great moment. It was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed this thoroughly, Jane, absolutely thoroughly. Um, I'm going to hand over to you now for your letter to your younger self, which I don't know what you're going to say, but your uh, talent and passion is just shining through enormously like a beacon, uh, even though we're not together. But I'm going to hand over to you now and thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was such an honour and a pleasure to meet you too. Oh, it really thanks. was. And best of luck. I'm, I'm, oh my goodness. <laughs> thank you very You're much. You're a brave woman. Thank you. Okay. Dear Jane, you are going to enjoy your life, so try to worry less about not fitting in or being too shy. You'll find out soon that most people feel the same way and that not fitting in or feeling slightly isolated or strange means you're special. Also, hang on to that anti-authoritarian rebellious streak and trust your gut. People should earn your respect, not simply get it because they're rich or powerful. Really make the most of your school and college years. I know you think that academia is not for you, despite both parents working at the university, but you'll realise that everything that you learn will help you and others and enrich your life enormously. Being told that you could do really well if you tried doesn't mean you shouldn't bother. Why not surprise everyone and make an effort? Learning is something that you will realise much later in your life is such a luxury and stimulates and inspires you. Keep reading. As someone else's words and experiences are the best way to understand and empathise with the world around you, it will also give you great pleasure and a chance to dip out of real life when it gets too stressful. Despite your slapdash approach to study, you will find your path with relative ease and will work hard to climb the ladder within the fashion industry, a place where you can express your love of creativity and encourage others to help you to implement new ideas and innovations. 
You will meet the love of your life at 23, who will become your soulmate, best friend, and the person you want to spend all your time with. You will know how lucky you are to have met this person. You will have setbacks, of course. You can't have children. But be pragmatic and don't let it define you as a person. It will continue to sadden you at times through your life, which is fine, but you will not let it take over. You will become successful turning businesses into compelling global brands with a loyal team of wonderfully talented people who share your visions. You will suffer from imposter syndrome from time to time, but you will have learned by now that not only do most other people suffer from it too, but that confidence can be faked and that if you do it often enough, you start to believe it. You will have to negotiate through the alpha males of the industry, including the monstrous Philip Green, but you will come out on top and your team will be protected. Then you will stop and realise that you probably shouldn't have done all that because fashion is so damaging to the environment. You should probably have taken a different path, one that perhaps would have been less fun but more responsible. Maybe you should have followed your parents into the sciences and found answers to so many of the issues that now confront us. Maybe if you had studied more. All you can do now is try and make amends to the experience you have gained. The next stage of your life will be campaigning and nurturing businesses that are doing the right thing, using fashion as a force for good with charities, helping women get back to work and generally trying to make the best of what we have and help the next generation to deal with what is left in the best way possible. Wow. I feel like, oh, I feel like the universe brought us together exactly at this point in time. (laughs) I, for one, have to say, I understand you're trying to make amends But I, for one, am very happy that you did what you did. And we didn't know everything then. That's true. And do you know what I mean? We didn't know everything then. And what you actually did for so many women who bought clothes, you gave us confidence. You gave us special times with our friends. You gave us the ability to transform, like you said, in our personality, see who we wanted to see. You gave us all of that. And I know you're trying to make amends and I I wish you so well how lucky every business is to have you advising them. But I just want to say I'm really happy that you were that beacon of light for all of us, certainly us businesswomen, and you did what you did and you stood for what you stood and you told who to go um, and shove it where the sun doesn't shine. (laughs) You know, you give me courage, Jane, and I'm on my next adventure. And I feel like the universe put us together today because I've taken so much from this and I know so many people will. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today. If you've enjoyed this episode, can I ask that you share it with a friend and like, subscribe and review it too, so that together we can inspire even more people to follow their dreams, to build a life they love. Mm